Hey, it's Francis. Stop for a second and picture a beer brewery. What's it look like? What do the brewers look like? Well, chances are the people you're picturing look pretty different than the people who brewed most of the beer in our country at the start. Check out this episode from last year on women beer brewers. Have a listen. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is The Splendid Table from APM. So Oktoberfest, the biggest beer festival in the world, is starting like any minute now in Germany. But today, we're going to talk about beer with a lot less sausage and pretzels, and a lot more clarity on who exactly laid the foundation for beer brewing in our country. And to start, we have Teresa McCullough. She's a curator at the American Brewing History Initiative at the Smithsonian National Museum of American History. And you know, I've actually had the pleasure of getting a personal tour of this museum. And, you know, it's not actually quite like where, you know, Nicolas Cage would bust in and steal the Constitution. But it is where the original Kermit the Frog and like where Julia Child's actual home kitchen are housed. So they take American cultural history very seriously. And we're about to learn how much cultural history there is to that six-pack in your fridge. Hey, Teresa, it's great to have you. Thanks so much for having me. So you work at the Smithsonian National Museum of American History, which is like the most serious institution on the planet. So can you tell me why the museum has a beer historian on staff. I mean, I, I literally have a store around the corner from me with a sign in the window that says beer. And, and I think that's what most people think of it as. So tell me why this subject needs an historian at the museum. Well, and I, I encounter all kinds of reactions of delight and amusement and intrigue <laughs> when I say that I am a curator of beer and brewing history at the Smithsonian. You're right. Um, so yes, as you mentioned, I'm at the American History Museum and um, we consider the full swath of American history from even before the nation's founding. And so beer is, as I always like to say, just a fantastic lens into all events and all eras and themes of our national history. So if you want to talk about immigration, beer is there. If you want to consider mm. changing gender roles and consumer tastes, you can consider it through the lens of beer. And so it's a very malleable and engaging and kind of applicable tool for me as a historian and uh, and also an arena where you can do serious and uh, and really interesting research. But why the history of beer in particular and not wine or spirits or drinks in general? There's something specific about beer, it sounds like. Well, and, and at the American History Museum, my colleagues and I, we research food history as well. We research the history of winemaking and, and also distilling. Um, my focus, though, on the history of beer and brewing really came about with the recent phenomenal growth in the brewing industry that's come to be known as the craft beer movement. Mm. And that really began in the mid-60s and has continued. And it's really been this kind of um, time of explosive growth in very small businesses and uh, you're likely familiar with a kind of rhetoric of returning to artisanal brewing techniques and ingredients sure. and all of that. There's all of a kind of a history behind it, you know, a kind of uh, impulse to return to a different time from uh, the mass market beer that really dominated the mid 20th century. Um, and so the establishment of, of my project, which is called the American Brewing History Initiative, is an effort to collect the history of this recent past and present through objects and documents and oral histories that can really uh, tell the story of this time. But in doing that, I, I build completely on the foundation that exists at the museum. We have a wealth of, of wonderful artifacts in, in terms of advertising material, sheet music of drinking songs even um, <laughs> from the early part of the 20th century, um, brewing equipment. And so, it, you know, again, my position lives within the division of work and industry at the museum. And so I'm surrounded by this wonderful material culture of beer, beer history. And uh, all of those things help me start conversations about history and how history has really produced our present. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so tell me about that history. Um, as you say, you're in the your department of the museum that looks at labor and work. And so we talk about people. And there is this image of who beer brewers are, in particular craft beer brewers, um, you know, there is this sort of standard image of usually it's 
a white dude, usually with a beard, um, you know, may or may not wear a lot of flannel. Um, has that always been the archetype of who brews beer in our country? No, and you are spot on. And it's also a very recent, very recent contemporary um, image of of who a brewer is, what a brewer looks like, and what even what the nature of brewing is like. Hmm. And you're right that that my position um, it it has a home within the division. It does because. Uh, the work of brewing has always been work. It's been, you know, it's a, it's been always a very utilitarian thing that has sustained Americans and before Americans has sustained um, Europeans and Africans and uh, Sumerians even before that. And so um, mm-hmm. brewing and the, the fermentation of, of beer in particular um, predates the founding of our nation. Um, so beginning in the early 17th century, uh, European colonists who came to this continent, who were primarily from uh, England and from the Netherlands, they brought European brewing traditions as we are more familiar with them today. Mm, okay. But before their arrival, indigenous communities on this continent produced a variety of fermented beverages from ingredients like corn and maple sap and a variety of fruits. Mm. Um, but brewing during the colonial times and the early Republic eras of American history uh, it was very much a small scale operation, something that was done frequently in small quantities at home. Um, and these hmm. were ales. And the, the two great families of beer, ale and lagers, are distinguished primarily by the yeasts that brewers use and by the way that those beers are created. Oh, wow. Okay, so this is so interesting because, you know, <laughs> I'm totally going to embarrass myself right now. But like, when I think of colonial like european colonial brewing in you know what we now call america i I literally just think of like sam adams you know i think (laughs) of brewer patriot sam adams but you're saying a lot of it actually happened at home like in a really sort of informal or or very small scale operation brewing was a domestic chore it was like baking bread it was like cooking it was uh not a kind of work that was particularly noteworthy for many people because it was just so it was a necessity it was something that was done uh you know as part of the the sustenance of a family's diet so your chores someone's yeah, part of your chores the, very much a chore and and you know brewing at this time in particular it was it was hot and tedious and heavy work it requires hours to brew a batch of beer. You are boiling a large quantity of water and then you need to cool it. You need to store it. You know, all of those, uh, all of that work takes time and effort and, uh, you know, to ensure that you can do it safely to keep it from spoiling. So um, it's, it was not easy. It was not glamorous, uh, but it was completely essential and it was skilled in its own way. Uh, Tell me a little bit about that, the idea of beer as sustenance. I mean, I know people who live like that, but I mean, like... (laughs) (laughs) Well, the brewing process requires you to boil the water, to to boil water to produce beer. And so um, that immediately made the... Um, the the finished beverage a, a safer thing to drink than mm. water, but even above and beyond that, historians have noted that um, Americans of the time drinking drinking water was was not a practice as as it is today. Is is you know we drink water throughout the day, but um, but colonists did not have a taste for water. They understood that it was not a safe source of of uh, of hydration. That beer was much more reliable. And so um, all members of a family drank beer all day, every day, whether one was a kid or, uh, you know, the mother or father or the, the laborers in a household. Uh, it was just it was the the beverage that was was always there on the table. And so um, most of these were what we call small beers. They were uh, low alcohol. Beers. OK, so it wasn't like everyone was just like falling over themselves all day long, like. No, no, but but you know, even more prevalent than beer in uh, in many parts of of the early United States was cider, and and that mm, okay. often had a, a higher alcohol content than beer. That's so interesting. Yeah, I mean, it. I, you know, these, these these are the things that modern people don't think about, right? Like, oh, you, especially here in our country, where you know most people, um, certainly not everyone, but most people have access to just potable water through a tap. You know, you turn on the faucet, and that's where you get your water, and. Um, but you had to think, oh, when you had to go get water, that water has animals living in it upstream and, and all that stuff. 
And this is in the era, of course, long before uh, even the establishment of railroads, of secure transportation networks. This It's uh, mechanical refrigeration, which uh, compared to other things like cider or distilled spirits or wine making, um, beer really requires cool temperatures to make and to hold in order for it to be a safe um, beverage to have in your household and, and thus the need to um, to make beer frequently and in small quantities over and over again to keep it safe. Teresa McCullough is the curator of the American Brewing History Initiative at the Smithsonian National Museum of American History. We've got more with her in a minute, and then filmmaker Atunike Diver talks about a movie she's making about Black women brewers in the South. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is The Splendid Table from APM. Our show is supported by Sitka Seafood Market. With Sitka Seafood Market, you can receive premium, sustainably harvested seafood from small boat fishermen and community processors shipped right to your door. Their wild-caught products are flash-frozen within hours of harvest, ensuring freshness and flavor. And Sitka Seafood offers flexible monthly or bi-monthly subscriptions, but you're never stuck with anything you don't want. They allow product swaps, special add-ons, easy pausing or cancellation, and they're backed by a 100% satisfaction guarantee. Members can also access exclusive benefits, recipes, and cooking tips. Not ready to commit to a subscription? No problem. They have one-time boxes that showcase seasonal, festive, and popular varieties without commitment. Promoting the dietary guidelines supported by the American Heart Association, Sitka Seafood Market emphasizes seafood's heart-healthy benefits. They're rich in omega-3 fatty acids and lean proteins. Start your free online visit today at sitkaseafoodmarket.com and use promo code SPLENDID35. Listeners receive $35 off their first order of $100 or more, subscription, or one-time box. Offer cannot be combined with other discounts or promotions. And that's Sitka, S-I-T-K-A, seafoodmarket.com, and promo code SPLENDID35. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is a show for curious cooks and eaters. Today, we're talking about a little-known side of the past and present of American beer, and we're with Teresa McCullough, a literal beer historian at the Smithsonian National Museum of American History. Let's get back to it with her. So let me turn to one of the stories you've researched and written about that I think really enriches and complicates the story of American beer making, certainly for me. Can you tell us about Patsy Young? Yes. So I was um, working on my book project, which is about the food and drink culture of New Orleans in the 19th and 20th centuries. And one of the resources that I have used for that project is a database of what historians refer to as runaway ads for enslaved people. And so these are digitized advertisements that were printed in American newspapers throughout the 18th century, 19th century, when an enslaved person fled from his or her enslaver. Um, and historians often prefer the term um, self-emancipate or escape uh, rather than run away. Mm -hmm, sure. um, the enslaver, understanding that this person was very financially valuable to them, would publish a notice in the local newspaper. And often these notices were quite brief, maybe 10 lines long, and they would uh, describe the person's physical appearance and perhaps any skills that they had. Also, any distinguishing marks, scars uh, on their body, anything that could be used to identify this person mm. who ha had fled. And so I searched through this database um, thinking instead that perhaps I would look and see if if beer or, or ale were mentioned in any of these ads. And this remarkable ad popped up on my computer screen. And the thing that struck me at first was the length of this ad. It was far longer than typical. It occupied almost a whole column in the newspaper. Mm. It was printed in the Raleigh Register, North Carolina in 1824. And this ad described a young woman who went by the name of Patsy Young. And it became clear upon reading the ad that this was the second time that she had escaped from her enslaver. She had first escaped 16 years earlier in 1808. But her enslaver, in describing her, and again, he described what she looked like, the tone of her skin, um, scar on her face. He also described that she was a skilled brewer. Mm. She was skilled at baking cakes at sewing fine clothing, and she had used these skills to support herself in freedom, almost 15 years of freedom as a fugitive in the region. And it 
just struck me as such an incredible initial foothold or handhold to have the name of an enslaved woman. Yeah, yeah. We know they were the most common brewers, but uh, this is, again, early 19th century. Enslaved women were the demographic that were least likely to be detailed in official historical records. The U.S. Census did not even collect the name of enslaved people at the time. And so to have a name, but then also particular um, places and dates and, and skills associated with her, I wanted to try to to research the world around her so that we could hopefully better understand her story uh, as an early American brewer. Yeah. And what else did you find about her story? Well, it, it was a very intriguing and um, challenging but gratifying thing to start to research because I began with this single scrap of materials, but then I tried to think, well, what were the elements of the world around her that that could be researched to fill in her story and her skills? And so I began to look through census records, but also to learn about the economy and geography of that region of North Carolina at the time, um, the political history of that part of the United States at the time. And I learned that she was enslaved by a, a man who enslaved dozens of people, Mm -hmm. um, that she lived in a very rural region of northeastern North Carolina. Um, Again, this was long before the era of railroads. Um, She did not live in a port city where she could have more easily slipped away when she fled. Um, She escaped the first time when she was 16. Mm. And for the period of time that she lived as a fugitive, she was not very far from her enslaver, no more than 100 miles away. But she clearly built a life for herself, first by shedding the name that her enslaver had given her. He listed her at first in the ad as uh, by the name Piety. But she shed the name Piety. She chose the name for herself, Patsy Young. Mm. And then she lived in this region, um, brewing and baking and sewing. And Learning about brewing at the time, too, I think really reveals her skills and her resourcefulness because, again, brewing was difficult work. Uh, Brewers struggled to find bottles in which to bottle the beer they made. Mm -hmm. Corks and even the wires to secure corks were in short supply. Uh, There was not a malting industry in the early United States at the time. Uh, Barley is the primary grain that goes into beer, and barley and malting barley were, were just not it was difficult to procure those things at the time. Um, And so, you know, I think all of those facts really pointed to how good of a brewer she was that the enslaver noted that she was skilled enough that she could be recognized by her brewing prowess um, in order to be identified. So you noted she had escaped twice, once as a teenager, and then presumably was recaptured. Um, and then escaped again. Do you know what became of her after her second escape? I don't I don't yet know the end of her story, and I don't know that I will, but there were several important um, happenings in her life that occurred shortly before her recapture. And this, uh, I'll point out, she was recaptured by, by the same enslaver. So mm-hmm. um, the first ad that I found in the newspaper, it was published in 1824. It mentioned that she had escaped a first time. So I was able to find the initial runaway ad when she had escaped in 1808 that was published in 1809. Um, The enslaver ran that ad for several months, um, but was clearly unsuccessful and he stopped paying to have it printed. And then for these 15 years, she lived in freedom. And the ad noted that she um, spent some time working along the Roanoke Canal when it was being constructed in the northern part of North Carolina. She worked cooking meals for the laborers who were building the canal. Um, And then around 1820, she had a daughter named Eliza. Mm. The ad noted this occurrence as well. Um, And then one of the more interesting finds in my research was that she married a free man of color living in the region. His name was Akeel Johnson. And an archive in North Carolina has... Uh, digitize the marriage license from when she married oh, wow. Akil. And that was an incredible source to find because, you know, you look on your computer screen to see this digitized piece of paper, which is 200 years old, and you see her name printed there, Patsy Young, understanding that's the name she chose for herself again, next to the name of her husband. There's a, a witness made his mark on this, sheet, this piece of paper that 
indicated a, a, a choice, you know, something that she was able to do of her own free will. Yeah. But it was less than a year after that happened, less than a year after her marriage, that her enslaver found her, recaptured her. And not only her, he took her daughter, Eliza, oh, back with him to his county and um, had them put up for sale as enslaved people. He purchased them and brought them back to his property. And about a year later, Patsy escaped again, bringing her daughter with her. And that's that's the point where this history, as I found it, began for me. So I kind of worked backward. But it's also at the moment the point where at least my understanding of her history ends. And, and there's more research to do, I know for sure. Um, and uh, I'm not ready to kind of talk about it yet, but I um, just in some of the subsequent research I've done in, in the last few months, I... It's just a kind of fragment of something I found in another North Carolina county a couple decades after this ended, and it was a record of um, enslaved people being passed from one enslaver to another via a will, but it's it's a piety and an Eliza and a Benjamin. They're linked, and it just – it might be a coincidence, but it, it's something worth looking into. Um, you know, it, it, seem, it would seem to indicate – a mother and two children, which would mean that she was captured again. But I, I hope that's not the case, and um, and I'll, I'm going to keep on going on this. What an incredible story, and really, I mean, a reminder that certainly, like, you know, for a long time, history was really written with only the powerful in mind, and so for you to be able to find these bits and pieces through time to help reconstruct a story and reconstruct a life and have us understand you know, the lives of so many people that were not, quote unquote, the kinds of people that history was written about and for. I think this prompts the question, how many others? We know there are countless others who were who were immigrants, who were enslaved people, not just in this era, but in other eras who built the foundations of industries that we enjoy today. But, you know, we started this conversation thinking about the familiar image of of a brewer yeah. today, a craft brewer. Mm -hmm. And that really derives very much from a recent past. It yeah. was in the mid-1800s, toward the end of, of what might have been Patsy Young's lifetime, when immigrants came from present-day Germany and the Czech Republic and brought a new tradition of lager brewing and in the process made brewing beer into a profession, a profitable profession, something that was done in factory-like settings. And mm -hmm, it was at that time that beer moved out of the home, out of the realm of domestic work, women's work, became something made by men. And and so um, the kind of gendering of American beer uh, switched very much uh, toward the end of the 19th century. And so um, the images that we might have in our mind today, which are reflected by the current demographics yeah, of, yeah, yeah, of yeah. the brewing industry, um, those really are rooted in a past that stretches back to the late 1800s. But before that time, there's another history and the people who built beer were very different. They were women and enslaved people and, and there are not necessarily... Um, diaries that they were able to write or records that they were able to make about their own lives because they were not enabled to do those things to keep those records about their own stories. Yeah. Thank you so much, Teresa. This is such important history. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Teresa McCullough is the curator of the American Brewing History Initiative at the Smithsonian National Museum of American History. And she's writing a book called Insatiable City, Eating Food and Consuming People in New Orleans. A lawyer and documentarian, Atina K. Diver has made projects about artists, highways, quilters, and parks. But I wanted to know, what made her make a full-length feature about beer and black women? And what has she found? We have her here to talk about her movie in progress, This Belongs to Us. Hi, Tina. It's great to have you. Hey, Francis. Good to be with you. We, you know, we just talked with Teresa McCullough about Patsy Young, who was an enslaved brewer in North Carolina. And I was so interested to learn that you're making a film about beer brewing today that also happens to be centered on North Carolina. So maybe we'll just start with how you came to this subject. So I came to the subject uh, a few years ago. Um, I live in Raleigh. Um, I moved mm. back. In 2014, I first came here actually to go to college at UNC Chapel Hill. 
And um, after moving back, decided to pursue a certificate in documentary arts at Duke, the Center for Documentary Studies, and had just finished working on some of my first short film and short audio projects, one of which was about a artist and a DJ and activist named uh, Gemini. Okay. And uh, was going to see uh, a new exhibit that Jim had uh, in downtown Durham. Okay. And Jim's artwork is centered on Black femmes, Black women, Black bodies. And uh, as I was going into Jim's space, walked by a brewery that had opened up nearby. It was a really nice day. They had their garage doors open. Quick scan of the crowd and everyone, by and large, appeared white. And then I go into Jim's art space and it's just like, you know, blackity, black, 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 like hyper, <laughs> you know, super um, centered on black artistic expression. Uh-huh. And then I go leave at the end of the night, passing this, uh, again, largely white clientele at this brewery. And I'm, you know, near the tra- railroad tracks. I'm across the street from one of the um, worst shaped public housing uh, communities in Durham. Mm-hmm. So it was this really interesting dissonance I was experiencing of like three or four different versions of Durham in this mm-hmm. one spot. Mm-hmm, and, you know, after I moved back to North Carolina, one of the things I had noticed was about how much space beer culture in the beer industry took up in North Carolina. Okay. Um, breweries uh, contribute around $9 billion to the North Carolina economy. That's billion wow. with a B. Wow. And around 2019, the last count was around 300 breweries across the state. So when you talk about particularly craft brewing in the South, North Carolina is definitely one of those epicenters. And so it was interesting being in those spaces, noticing um, how racially a lot of those spaces were centered around kind of the, I would say, stereotype of the bearded beer bro um, and and generally white (laughs) men, Um, because that was so different from what I grew up knowing about beer history and beer culture. I had a more Afrocentric... So my parents uh, came to the U.S. from Nigeria in the 1970s. And I grew up with an understanding and awareness of the history of Egyptians brewing, of Ethiopians brewing. And we actually had a family friend who worked uh, as a brewer in Nigeria. So the first brewer I ever met was a black African man. Mm-hmm. And so I was just kind of wondering, wow, how did this craft that I've known as being kind of inherently African, you know, become so identified with male white identity in the United States? Oh, that's super interesting. So shortly after kind of that initial experience, I kind of filed it and in 2019 happened to be at the Haytai Film Festival, which is a black film festival that's held in Durham every year. Uh, For those who don't know, Haytai is the uh, historically black community uh, here in Durham. It's one of the many black Wall Streets that existed Mm. um, prior to the era of what some refer to as Negro removal. Other refer to as urban renewal, but um, when a highway, Highway 147, cut through um, and began the demise of, of a, a black economy and ecosystem that existed. Mm-hmm. And so the Haytai Film Festival, um, again, focuses on black film. And during an intermission, there was someone uh, pouring samples of beer from Harlem Brewing. And, like Harlem is in New York City, Harlem. Yes. And for those who don't know, Harlem Brewing was actually uh, founded by Celeste Beatty, who is acknowledged and recognized as the first black woman in the U.S. to own her own brewery. Celeste Mm. is also a native of Winston-Salem, North Carolina, a graduate (laughs) of Shaw University in Raleigh, North Carolina. Um, Didn't know that all that at the time. But what the person did tell me was that a black woman made this beer. And I thought, oh, that's cool. You know, that's what's up. Black made beer at a black film festival. Makes sense. Sure. And um, and then the person said, and, you know, she's also apprenticing a young woman in eastern North Carolina. And I was like, what? So that's when I realized, well, maybe there's a there there. And I began researching and came upon this beer festival called, at the time, that was called Fresh Fest, that was held every year in Pittsburgh. And I decided to make a trip up there to do some research. And when I arrived, it was just like the scales fell off my eyes. Like I, <laughs> I had no idea about Black beer culture until I got to Fresh Fest. You know, I'm going around trying beers and I stop at one table. I look down at the business card and... They dress in Rocky Mountain, North Carolina. And I look up at the brewer and I'm like, you're you're in Rocky Mountain? And she goes, yeah, and I'm from Durham. And I'm like, what? And so that's the moment I met Brianna Brake, who's the CEO and brewmaster of Spaceway Brewing. Um, and it was the person that I heard about at the Haytai Film Festival. Um, I think the other really important moment that happened around the same time actually was the, the hashtag I am craft beer. Um, so what happened was uh, Shalonda White, who's also known as Afro Beer Chick, uh, who's based in Chicago, 
uh, shared a post on Twitter about basically some very racially vitriolic hate mail that she had received mm. um, that also stated that as a black woman, she really didn't have any place in beer. Black people didn't have any place in beer. They didn't belong in beer. And so following that, um, Dr. J. Jackson Beckham, Anshalanda, and other folks um, created this hashtag, I am craft beer, really encouraging people to take a selfie and post to reflect the expanse and the breadth of the craft beer, I guess, community, for lack of a better term. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this moment was definitely one that was a catalyst around this theme of reclamation that we're seeing a lot around all kinds of foodways in the U.S., but particularly around beer. Um, and I think it makes this really important statement that, you know, any history about beer that does not include Black people is deficient and incomplete. Yeah. So tell me about the Black craft beer community. Is it a world where um, it, it recognizes that, you know, there are things for us, you know, referencing the title of your film, but that there are also ways in which it is connected to and needs to be connected to and deserves to be connected to the larger craft beer community? I would say, yeah, both for sure. You know, there's this interesting tension I've been exploring on this project around beer being part of kind of this larger category of spirits and alcohol that have a history and they have Mm -hmm. a global history and then they have a specific history as it relates to certain groups of folks in the U.S. and how all those things are impacted by the history of the transatlantic slave trade, of white supremacy, of um, colonization. And I think you can't talk about beer history in the U.S. without also talking about our racialized history in terms of who was allowed to do this, what labor contributed to the building and success of some breweries and others, who, which tavern owners and saloon owners lost their breweries during race riots. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what women were allowed to actually own, you know, a brewing business. How do things around, you know, respectability politics um, and, you know, black codes and things like that, that also policed how certain people interacted with, with beer affect that. And so that's one of the things that I love the most about this project is that there are all these themes that you can explore, you know, beer through. Um, And I think there's also this um, desire to like continue to make those connections between, you know, what's happening modern day and, you know, our ancestors. Um, And you can see that too. And even just some of the ways that black brewers, the the decisions they make about naming their breweries, the ingredients that you're, they're using, um, you know, the, beer styles that they're brewing. And even working on this project um, in 2021, when I was preparing to do a works in progress screening for Sundance, my mom, for the first time, shared with me that my grandmother uh, was a brewer and that she huh. Uh, huh. brewed, yeah. <laughs> well, you didn't know that. <laughs> I did not. My mom had always talked about my grandmother as being a seamstress and you know, she was a hustler because she had like five different jobs and all these things, but she never, ever talked about her as a brewer until I started working on this project. And Come so on. she shared that she That's brewed- wild. Um, it is. Yeah. She brewed um, Bodokutu, which is the traditional fermented drink in West Africa made of sorghum. So when mm. you start to think about some of the connections between particularly Southern foodways and West Africa, um, that's one of the things that come up. Sorghum's also naturally gluten-free. So mm. that's often what folks are using to make gluten-free beer. Um But yeah, those types of connections and those types of, um, I think just this desire to be able to point back to the fact that, you know, this belongs to us because it was always a part of, you know, who we were and who we are. Brewers are tapping into what I think tends to make craft beer unique, which is this really close connection to agriculture, Mm. right? So like, so like lots of people groups, had their own version of a fermented beer. So whether it's chicha or pulque, in my grandmother's case, burukutu, but it was about what was the agriculture growing nearby? What was the grain, right? Like yeah. that's really the big difference in some of these fermented drinks. And so modern, you know, craft brewers, I think they're really honoring kind of what is, what makes craft beer craft as yeah. well as bringing in some of their, you know, their identity. So some of them are using sorghum. Some of them are using, you know, if they're in the South, maybe sweet potatoes or it's like pawpaw season now. So <laughs> pawpaw is this fruit that's, um, you know, that's a very North Carolina product. Um, or the muscadine, again, another... Um, mm, like the Southern know, fr- grapes. Yeah. Mm-hmm, yeah. So they're bringing in 
you know, again, like tying in these foodways, because I mean, so much about the foodways of the South that we love are really African. Sure. Um, Okra. Yeah. Sweet potato. Yeah. We know how it got here. And so when craft brewers honor all of the ways in which to bring in that local agriculture into their beers, they're being true to, you know, what makes craft craft. And they're able to, I think in some cases, you know, feel and sense a connection to um, the ingredients that some of their forebearers, you know, would have used and and, uh, integrated in some of their brewing practices. Mm. Thank you so much, Tina. This has been really, really great. Thank you, Francis. Enjoy talking with you. Tina K. Diver is the director of the forthcoming documentary, This Belongs to Us. Coming up, beer and food pairings to get excited about this fall with beer writer Stephanie Grant. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is The Splendid Table from APM. Our show is supported by Sitka Seafood Market. With Sitka Seafood Market, you can receive premium, sustainably harvested seafood from small boat fishermen and community processors shipped right to your door. Their wild-caught products are flash-frozen within hours of harvest, ensuring freshness and flavor. And Sitka Seafood offers flexible monthly or bi-monthly subscriptions, but you're never stuck with anything you don't want. They allow product swaps, special add-ons, easy pausing or cancellation, and they're backed by a 100% satisfaction guarantee. Members can also access exclusive benefits, recipes, and cooking tips. Not ready to commit to a subscription? No problem. They have one-time boxes that showcase seasonal, festive, and popular varieties without commitment. Promoting the dietary guidelines supported by the American Heart Association, Sitka Seafood Market emphasizes seafood's heart-healthy benefits. They're rich in omega-3 fatty acids and lean proteins. Start your free online visit today at sitkaseafoodmarket.com and use promo code SPLENDID35. Listeners receive $35 off their first order of $100 or more, subscription, or one-time box. Offer cannot be combined with other discounts or promotions. And that's Sitka, S-I-T-K-A, seafoodmarket.com, and promo code SPLENDID35. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is The Splendid Table, the show for curious cooks, eaters, and drinkers. And that's because our next guest is Stephanie Grant, a writer for Good Beer Hunting, CraftBeer.com, and other magazines and sites. And we're going to get into her favorite beer styles and what to eat with them for the fall. Hi, Stephanie. It's great to see you. It's great to see you, Francis. So, you know, I for all the time I spend around food people, I actually honestly don't really get to meet that many beer journalists. So ah. now I here I am in front of a real live beer journalist. <laughs> and I want to ask you, what got you into beer? Oh, well, uh, the thing that got me into beer is I started watching football. Right I, <laughs> Yes, I started watching football because I was watching Friday Night Lights. And I just loved, I love that show. So oh, the show. Oh, I need to become you, used to, a- well, you got into football because you were watching the show Friday Night Lights? Yes. Oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> I got so excited about how excited the fans were in sure. the show. And so I was like, I want to be a football fan. So I started <laughs> watching football. And I was like, well, if I'm watching football, I definitely need to start drinking beer. Because that's <laughs> beer and football are go hand in hand. So I started drinking Budweiser, well, Bud Light at the time, because that's what my dad would drink. And from there, I started exploring. Uh, and I, the first beer that really just knocked my socks off was Allagash White and hmm. I've just not turned back since. Oh interesting. It just it changed my life. Um I I'm pretty sure I tried other things, but that one was the one that it stood out in my mind. I still remember that moment. Hmm. What is it like? Can you describe it? Oh gosh. Um <laughs> heaven. <laughs> uh so it has these beautiful notes of orange peel and coriander mm. it's a belgian style wheat beer mm-hmm. and it's just so delightful on the palate oh right on and then so it just sort of opened your world and been like oh wow there's so much more to see so much more to find exactly yeah and i actually know from you in fact that there are over 70 sort of commonly yes. accepted styles of beer but you know and a lot of them are seasonal a lot of them are perennial but as we head into fall what are some of the beers or some of the styles of beer that you look forward to and maybe you can help us sort of define each of them yes so 
actually, let's talk about the different styles and then I can actually tell you like which ones I think are great for fall. Yeah, I love that. So, um, I, so there's a book, the beer, um, the beer pantry that is just fantastic. I love the way to divide the beer styles up. Um, because they are, are actually 75 plus, um, okay. styles, it's, it can be difficult to get through all of them, but, um, I love the way they broke this up. And so you have crisp and clean, which is what probably everyone is drinking right now. You have your lagers, you have blonde ales, you have your colches, and then you can get uh, also those hoppy and um, bitter beers. Those are also good around this time of year. IPAs are huge. Mm-hmm. Um, you have double IPAs and pale ales. And then malty and sweet. That's when you get into those fall flavors. Mm, okay. And that's when you have like a brown ale, a double, um, a scotch ale. And you can also, when you get really into um, that colder weather, that's when I like to reach for rich and roasty. And that's when you would have like your stouts and porters. Those are some of my favorites and my husband's favorites. Mm. Uh, and then uh, going back to summer, you would probably want to reach for something fruity and spicy. Saisons are delicious. Uh, triples and wheat beers. All uh, refreshing, very nuanced beers. And another category I love drinking in the summer, sour, tart, and funky. Mm-hmm. And that's when you get into lambics um, and any of uh, those sour beers, whether it's American Sour or um, uh, Kettle Sour, those those things. And so going back to those fall beers, the malty and sweet, those are the ones that are going to stand up to dishes like, um, I love making braised dishes in the fall. Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh, braised short ribs are my favorite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's those I would pair with a double. Tell me what Roast a double chicken. is. A double is a Belgian style beer. It's going to have... Um, some very like rich, some like caramelly, um, maybe even like a hint of like chocolate because the grains are roasted um, longer. And so they take on a lot of like, if you think about roasting coffee beans, it's almost mm-hmm, mm-hmm. similar to that. So that roast helps bring in some of those like richer, more full body flavors. Okay. So, yeah. so in coffee terms, that would be... Like a, a a dark roast versus something like really light and fruity and fresh, like you might find like a really like light roast. And yes, are there doubles that you particularly love that you'd recommend us to check out? Oh, I can't think of one off the top of my head. So I would say it's if you walk into your local brewery, mm-hmm. it would probably be difficult for you to actually find a double on tap. Okay, for those types of beers, I would recommend going to a specialty shop. And if you're really, if you're looking to get into beer, a specialty shop is where you want to go um, because the people there are going to be able to figure out what your um, preferences are taste-wise and guide mm-hmm. you. And that's honestly the the biggest thing that has helped me on my journey when I started was walking into a specialty shop. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did just think of a brand, Oma Gang, um, Abby mm-hmm. L. They that would be a good double to look for. Okay. And double, it's, it's not D-O-U-B-L-E, right? It's D-U... How's it spelled? D-U-B-E-L. B-B-E-L. And you said it's a A lot of people style. say double, but double. It's, okay. it's double. Mm-hmm. Okay, right on. And so those are typically or, or often imported from Belgium. So like you said, not yes. a lot of local breweries will have them. Now, breweries here in America do make them. They're not a super popular style to make here Uh in America, we love our IPAs and sours. Oh, okay. Those reign supreme, and of course, lagers. Right on. So, okay, so what's another beautiful fall dish slash beer pairing for you? Yeah, um, so another thing I love making in the fall is chili. Mm-hmm. And the best beer to pair with the chili is a brown ale. A brown ale will be a little bit easier to find. Okay, um, what makes a brown ale a brown ale? Brown ales and doubles have similar characteristics, but a brown ale can either be on the on the sweet side or it can have a bit more of that roast. So if you think about going back to coffee, 
like if you just add sugar to a black coffee mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, versus keeping it maybe a medium roast so it's not super um dark and roasty but it's it's kind of in the middle like you can have that okay. medium roast coffee no sugar um so brown else can kind of range between those two uh monday night brewing in Atlanta. I I used to work there and they make this really delicious brown ale that has like maple syrup in it. And um, like literally syrup in the beer, not, not like notes of. uh, Yes. And what I've always wanted to do was to uh, reduce it down to a syrup and put it on my pancakes. Oh, cool. And then also I have another pairing for you for the brown ale. Uh, If you like roasted pork, um, any roasted pork dish would also be good with that. Mm, yeah, I can see that. Because you really love that, like, crackly, caramelized, nice Maillard. Yes, With, like, yes. that sort of sweet pork flavor. I can yes. totally see that with, like, a nice roasty beer. Yes. Brown and so with pairings, you want to look for complementary flavors or mm-hmm. a good contrast. Mm-hmm. And so these are more fall in that complementary. Um, those multi sweet, roasty beers usually have the same characteristics as a lot of our fall foods. If you think about braising those short ribs and getting um, that mylar effect, that those same like notes in the food are going to be in those beers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Cool. And then my next uh, favorite is amber ale. Amber ales are really great with all kinds of foods. Uh, they are going to be lighter in color. So the double and the brown ale are going to be darker, look more like a black coffee versus an amber ale is going to look more red. And to me, amber ales taste like fall. Like if fall leaves taste it like anything, that's what an amber ale tastes like to me. Um, I love that. And that those you would want to pair an amber ale with a pumpkin pie. Oh, cool. are going back to football, grilled (laughs) meats. So your burgers, your barbecue chicken, um, sausage, that's the, that's the beer you want to bring for tailgate. Right on. Okay. Well, okay. So speaking of that, then if you're thinking about people grilling and people using like barbecue sauce and their barbecue sauces have acid, they have sweetness, they have some chili, some spiciness. Is that a good match with the Amber? Is that, I'm I'm kind of feeling that a little bit. Yeah, so I would say I would stick to uh, tomato-based barbecue sauce sauces mm-hmm. for this. Um, more probably more so than like a mustard base or um, like I'm thinking your traditional. Uh, what I grew up was like the craft barbecue yeah, yeah, yeah. sauce. I, like yeah, that's someone um, just throws on a chicken on the grill, not really like a yes. hardcore yes. slow smoke barbecue. Something yeah. your classic tomato. Um, you can have a little bit of spice, but you don't want to have too much because you don't want to overwhelm the beer. Mm-hmm. Um, that's something that you have to think of when you're thinking of pairings and making sure that those flavors don't clash. Um, I like to always think about what the beer tastes like and then what the food tastes like and then try to imagine what they would taste like together before I um, put something together. Yeah. Well, actually, well, then, that brings me to a question I have for you then. Which yeah. is something that, you know, a lot of people are, are really obsessive about IPAs. Yes. And one of the signatures of an IPA is it's very hoppy, right? Very can be very bitter, yeah. and that and that hoppy yes. sort of resiny, almost piney flavor from the hops with bitterness. I think people, you know, like like that complexity in the drink. But do you eat food with that, or would you, you can. pair food with an IPA? You can. Um, it can be a little tricky, but you can. Um, some of the things that are easy, like uh, pizza, burgers. Um, but I, I've i heard, and this is something I want to try soon, uh, carrot cake apparently is very huh. good with an IPA. <laughs> and also getting back to like some fall foods, a butternut squash soup is also good with an IPA. Okay. Or- so orange food. <laughs> Yes, orange food. (laughs) (laughs) Right on. Like people like think of carrot cake in terms of like, it's about the moistness, it's about the texture, it's about the cream cheese frosting. But you know, there's a lot of people make their carrot cake with a little bit of warm spice, right? A little bit of cinnamon, a little bit, but not very much. So yeah, maybe with like that kind of like 
piney kind of deep bitterness of the IPA. I could I can kind of see that. Yeah. So I I've heard the sweetness in the cake helps cut some of that bitterness. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you get some more of that, like you said, the pine. Um, maybe I, I would stick to. Um, so there are a vast variety of uh, IPAs. Sure, so yeah. I would stick to not necessarily a New England or hazy IPA with the tropical notes. I would um, veer more towards those piney resinous IPAs with a carrot cake. Cool. So what actually are like the most popular beer styles in America? Like the ones you'll just find at pretty much any store. Yeah. So uh, IPAs reign supreme. And followed behind that, I would say lagers. Mm. And, um, well, actually, I would say lagers are probably over IPAs if you look, uh, if you don't make the distinction between craft beer and just, um, and just macro mass brew market. Beer. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so, yes, lagers, then IPAs, and then uh, sours, especially sours that have like this really good balance of, sweet and tart and uh ones that are becoming really popular are almost like smoothies in a way (laughs) very thick and very packed full of fruit uh those can be really fun and delicious to drink oh that's so cool it's surprising that they're really popular because i thought they would be like kind of more like a, a specialty thing no it's been surprising the in particular the ones that are very like thick and super fruity they do a really good job of balancing out some of that tartness so people who might veer away from something that's sour they actually enjoy them because of the the balance between the two all right well super delicious thank you so much stephanie thank you Stephanie Grant writes about beer, food, and cocktails and the black women behind them in her newsletter, The Share. You can find it on Substack. And that's our show. Thanks as always for listening. And by the way, we are actually getting deep into Thanksgiving planning. It's not too early for you to start planning too. What are you going to eat? What do you need help with? We're looking for great questions to throw our amazing guest way for our annual Thanksgiving Day show, Turkey Confidential. So record a Thanksgiving question on your voice memo app and email it to contact at splendidtable.org. Thank you for listening. Take care. I'll talk to you next week. APM Studios are run by Chandra Kavadi, Alex Shafford, and Joanne Griffith. Beth Perlin's our executive producer, and The Splendid Table was created by Sally Swift and Lynn Rosetto Casper, and it's made every week by technical producer Jenny Glupke, producer Erica Romero, digital producer James Napoli, and managing producer Sally Swift. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is APM Studios. Listener.